good morning, everyone. I am very excited to be here. Um, I want to begin by thanking the elders for trusting me to be here. <laughs> um, obviously, we're, my family and I were pretty new. We've only been here just about a year. And uh, being military, we have to jump in quick wherever we go. And so I appreciate all the mentorship, the guidance, um, and, and trust from, from your elders. And, and so while, uh, while I'm taking a drink, would you please turn to Matthew 26? 17. And go ahead and stand as we read God's word. Verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house for my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. You can be seated. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the time that we have this morning to look into it. I pray that you who know our needs, you who know our hearts, would do the work within us through the power of your spirit that needs to be done today, and that we would leave here more in love with you than when we arrived. In Jesus' name. Remember the prophecies. Saw a few of them in here, right? As it was written. Remember the prophecies. Prophecies are a pretty common theme in culture, literature, uh, movies, things like that. I'm actually going to read to you a few prophecies famous ones, if you will. And like Jeopardy, don't answer until I finish, but I want you to shout out, once you know the answer, where it came from, and bonus points if you know who said it. 
So here's the first one. One day, a talented lass or fellow, a special one with face of yellow, will make the peace of resistance found from its hiding refuge underground. And with a noble army at the helm, this master builder will thwart the craggle and save the realm and be the greatest, most interesting, most important person of all times. And all this is true because it rhymes. There you go. Oh, you even get the actor. That's the voice actor. That's triple points. All right. Here's the next one. From the ashes, a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Lord of the Rings. That's right. I don't know specifically who said that. That's just one of those prophecies that's kind of floating out there. All right, last one. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bones sits at Caraparavel in throne, the evil time... Oh, nah. You answered before I was done. The evil time will be over and done. Lion, witch, in the wardrobe, and who said it? The beaver. <laughs> in the movie, at least. I, I don't remember the book, but... So remember the prophecy. Remember. Why do they want to remember these things? It's because all of these prophecies were foretelling something significant. Right? There's a supernatural element to prophecy. Right? And so they're looking forward to some special one, some chosen one, some anointed one who's going to come and save the people. Now, where do you think they got this theme from? I would say they stole it from the Bible. That's a, that's a good answer. This, this is not a new theme. Um, God was making prophecies about a, a chosen one who was going to come and save the world way before any of these people thought of it. And so this morning, this passage deals a lot with prophecy. Both old prophecy being fulfilled in this passage, but also prophecy being made in this passage. To be fulfilled in a matter of hours, or a matter of days, or weeks, and if you know, think back to Matthew 24, 25, there were prophecies for decades from now, and there were prophecies for some undetermined amount of future, uh, time in the future that were being made. And so we're going to look at how that helps us in our walk with the Lord. Why do we remember the prophecy? Well, we remember for a reason. Now, Matthew, if you remember, I'm sure, I wasn't here for the beginning of the series, but I'm sure Stephen went over this a little bit. But Matthew is a Jew, so he's a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah, and the Jews had a very preconceived notion of what they thought the Messiah was going to be and do, right? And Jesus wasn't quite meeting those expectations, and so not only does he have the task of trying to convince his, uh, his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, they, he's also working to convince them that he's God, I don't know that that was necessarily a thing that they connected. They knew that the, the anointed one was going to be sent from God, but I don't know that there was a common thought that he was going to be God. And so Matthew's got a, kind of a twofold challenge here that he's trying to do. And in order to do that, he quotes the Old Testament 96 times. And 15 of those times are specific prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Think back to the beginning of Matthew when it talks about out of Egypt you know, they, they brought him out of Egypt, the, the passage, the prophecies, out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, Jesus, therefore, had to go to Egypt, and so, therefore, Herod had to try to kill him, and they fled to Egypt, right? That was to fulfill a prophecy. And so, 
that's just one example towards the beginning of the book where we can see this starting to happen. And as I mentioned, this passage is full of remembrance. And I'm going to use the word remember so many times today, you're going to wish you could forget it. All right, just fair warning. But remember, remember what God has done, what the Psalms and the prophets have foretold. Remember the feast. And you think, what, what's, the, you know, what's so big about a feast? Well, let's talk a little bit about what we see right here in the first verse, this unleavened bread. What is the unleavened bread and what is the Passover? Now, if you don't have any frame of reference with the Old Testament, the New Testament's going to make very little sense. You have to read the scriptures together. The old enlightens the new, and the new enlightens the old, and together as a whole, we have an understanding of God's redemptive work throughout history. And so you can't neglect reading the Old Testament or the New Testament. Got to have both together. And today is a prime example of that. Unleavened bread. Well, let's actually, let's look at real quick, verse 30, about this hymn that they, they sung before they went up to the Mount of Olives. Now, as part of the Passover celebration, there, was a, there were a number of prayers, there were a number of psalms, there were a number of cups that were poured out and different things like that. Um, I've never been to a Seder meal. I'd like to someday uh, just to experience that. But one of the, the things that we know of this is that psalm that they sung there towards the end of the meal likely would have been Psalm 118 where we get a lot of familiar phrases like, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And, interestingly enough, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not very long ago in the chronology of Matthew did we see that one being fulfilled, right? So, where does this Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover come from? Well, the Passover, if you recall, was one of the plagues, one of the judgments on Egypt. God was trying to get his people, not trying, God doesn't try to do things, he does things. Um, he was getting his people out of Egypt, and he was using Moses to do that, free them from bondage, from slavery. And all these plagues, the locusts and the blood of the, wa the water and all that, that all happened. And now we're here to the last one. And this is going to be the angel of death who's going to come, and he's going to kill the firstborn of all the people in the land. Unless they take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it on their doorposts, and the angel of death would then pass over that house. Pretty strong correlation to the blood of Jesus Christ being applied to us and God's wrath passing over us, right? We see a lot of continuity here in the way that God's telling the story of redemption. Exodus 12, verse 14, speaking of the Passover, says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. Keep that in mind. Forever you shall keep it as a feast. Then Exodus 13, 3 and then 8 through 10 says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. So here's that unleavened bread. Now when they're doing this feast... And your son says to you, why do we do this? You shall tell your son on that day, it's because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. But that didn't happen very long. They didn't obey that command, those commands, for very long. Reading 2 Kings 23, uh, 
this is when Josiah becomes the king of Judah. At this point, there's two kingdoms. Israel, I think at this point, has already been taken captive by the Assyrians. And so there's just the kingdom of Judah left. Josiah was one of the better kings. Israel had no good kings. Like, they were just worse, 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 worse. Judah at least kind of had some ups and downs. They had some decent kings here and there. But what we learn is, is once the book of the law is found in the temple, some priest is in there poking around, and he finds this thing off in a corner. Like, what is this? And picks it off and dusts it. You know, it's, now I'm feeling like one of those movies where, like, where they find the prophecy or something, right? And they dust this thing off, and he looks at it and goes, oh, this isn't good. So he runs over to the king, and he says, king, look at this. This is the law of the Lord. I just found it in the temple. And Josiah looks at it, and he goes, this isn't good. And he rips his garments, which is a way in Jewish culture of saying this is really bad, and commands that the people re hear the law read and then start to observe it. And one of the first things that they do is to restart observing the Passover. It says in that passage, and uh, if you want to double-check me on this, 2 Kings 23, 21 through 23, and it says that they had not observed the Passover since the time of the judges. That means David didn't even celebrate the Passover. That means Solomon didn't celebrate the I mean, maybe they, I don't know, but as a nation, as a whole, they did not celebrate these feasts that were supposed to be perpetual through all generations. And the reason they remember, God wants them to remember for a reason. There's a reason that God says, remember these things. Remember my law. Remember my outstretched hand, my, my, my outstretched arm, my mighty hand that freed you. Because you're still needing me, right? We remember what he did because we need him to do things now. And we need to believe that he will. And so there's a reason why God says, remember me. Don't forget me. So that when we do this feast, your son asks you these questions. It's kind of like, you know, having a reason for the hope that's in us. Somebody asks us, and we tell them, right? He has these feasts so that the kids will say, Dad, why do we do this, right? And I think that's even part of the Passover, like, narrative, right? Why do we do this? And so it's this remembrance that we're looking to do. This is key. Jesus remembered, didn't he? In this passage, we see him obeying this command of God. He had to in order to be perfect, right? Jesus was perfect. He perfectly fulfilled the law. So therefore, he had, to, he had to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in order to obey the commands that we just read from Exodus. Jesus fulfills that perfectly when they didn't and when we can't. He is our perfect righteousness. Remembering also the new covenant. He's making references here throughout this passage that he's, I think, implicitly expecting the disciples to remember. This is the blood of the new covenant. Now, my Bible doesn't have new. It has it down in the notes, but I'm, yours might say the new covenant. Well, where is this new covenant from? We'll turn to Jeremiah 31, verse 31, and we'll see. This is a, probably a familiar passage to a lot of folks, but we're going to see how this comes to fulfillment here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when, they, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin 
no more. This is starting to sound really gospel-y, right? Forgiving of the iniquity and the sin. And we see this tied to the bread and the cup, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what's significant here is Jesus is changing things. He's telling them now to change the way that they're observing this Passover. God was the one who said, observe this for all your generations forever. So only God has the authority to change that. So Jesus is implying at this moment, I'm God. I'm changing this right now. This new covenant thing you read about in Jeremiah, remember that. Now you're going to see it fulfilled. This is my body and this is my blood. Now the disciples are remembering, maybe, hopefully, just a couple years ago in their chronology. John 6, Jesus has fed the 5,000, and the people were really stoked about that. This guy can heal people. He can make bread and fish appear. We don't know if he's the Messiah, but boy, he'd be an awesome king. And so it says they were going to come and basically take him by force and make him their king. They wanted this guy to rule over them because of the physical things that he was doing for them. Well, Jesus, he says, no, no, no. You're still going to get hungry from that bread that I made you. If you want to never hunger, you need to eat the bread that comes from heaven, the bread of life. Oh, that sounds like a good thing. Well, then he takes it a step further and says, that is me. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all of a sudden, people are like, that's a little odd. I don't know that I like this. And we see as we read John 6 that a lot of the disciples, his disciples, people that were following, actively following Jesus, left. They're like, that's, that's a hard word. We can't handle that. We're done. And so then he turns to the 12 and he says, what about you? And they said, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And they stick with him. But in this moment, I can imagine as Jesus is using this bread and, and cup as a symbol, they're like, whew, glad that was a symbol he was talking about, right? Where they're thinking back to that John 6 passage, uh, or that, not the passage, passage to us, but history to them, and thinking, okay, so this is a symbol. I can, I can do this. This is a little bit different, all right? Now, in this passage, we don't see the same words that we see in Luke, in the parallel passage, and we don't see it as we see in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, which is where we typically draw the, the communion narrative from when we celebrate, like we did a couple weeks ago. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, right? The Passover was remember what I did for you, the salvation that I brought you from the land of Egypt and how death and judgment passed over you. Jesus says, remember my body and my blood and how you were saved and how death and judgment passed over you because of this. It's a remembrance. We're called to remember for a reason. 2 Timothy 2.8 says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So that's a lot of old prophecy being fulfilled. And I mentioned there's also some prophecies that Jesus is making and sometimes when we think of prophecies, we think of big, huge things like the New Covenant or, you know, something like that. Or there's some small stuff here, right? Just, I, one of you will betray me. You will all abandon me. One of you, or Peter, you're going to deny me, right? So we see this betrayal, denial, and abandonment foretold. But there's also hope that he speaks about in here. And Jesus begins with this truly, 
statement a couple times throughout this passage. It means what I'm about to say, listen up, this is for real, it's going to happen. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, of course, they start asking, well, is it, is it me? Could it be me? I mean, I, I think I get thought of Peter, and I was like, well, there's that one time where he was saying something he thought was a good thing, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So maybe he's thinking, well, if that could happen, well, maybe, maybe I could. Maybe I, I could actually betray him. And so they're, they're worried about this. They're, it says that they were troubled. Uh, let's see, where are we at? Um, one of you will betray me, and they were very sorrowful. Jesus is troubled, though. If you look at one of the parallel passages, I don't remember which gospel it's from, but it says, and Jesus, being troubled in his spirit, said to them, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so there's this, there's this element of emotion that we should not lose when we're reading the scriptures, especially reading the gospels. Don't read it so academically that you read it as if Jesus said, hey, I have an announcement to make. One of you is going to deny me. One of you is going to betray me. Okay, just thought I'd let you know. Right? No, there's, there's emotion involved in this. Jesus says he's troubled in his spirit. Truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all very sorrowful in their response. And so I don't want to go too far into this, but something we can take away is Jesus had emotions. Jesus is God. Therefore, God has emotions. We're created in God's image. Therefore, we have emotions. Emotions aren't a bad thing. Out-of-control emotions, of course, a bad thing. But we should let the scriptures reveal and refine our emotions. And I'll, I'll leave that at that with the emotional aspect of this. But, but as you read, don't lose the emotion. Put yourself there in the moment and try to feel what they're feeling, the gravity of the situation, especially as we go in the, in the coming weeks, these passages. Like, there's so much emotion involved in here. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Here's a reference, again, to one of the older prophecies. And then if you look over in verse 31, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's quoting Zechariah 13, 7, almost word for word. And so as he's making these prophecies about what's going to take place, I mentioned don't lose sight of the hope. Don't lose sight of the fact that he says, but after I'm raised up. Or, I will go before you to Galilee. So in the midst of these horrible statements of, you're all going to leave me, deny me, betray me, there's hope that he offers. And we see that one about Galilee, that actually, we see that fulfilled in John 21. He goes before them to Galilee, just like he said he would. Luke, chapter 22, records more words that Jesus said to Peter when he was telling him that you're going to deny me. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now look over at verse 75 of Matthew 26, the very last verse in the chapter, a lot of verses in this chapter. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. So when the rooster crows, he remembers. Jesus said this was going to happen. Now, I hope in that moment that he also remembered when you turn again. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. The point is that he remembered. He still went out and wept bitterly because of what he had done. But there was hope that was offered him. So even when telling them these horrible things, Jesus was still trying to strengthen them in their faith. 
by getting to the point of remembrance. Remember these things. Now, the disciples, they did remember. They remembered a few things after all this took place. And I want to look at a couple passages here. Luke 24, 25 through 27. This is the road to Emmaus. And so you've got a couple of the disciples. This is after the, re- the crucifixion. This is, act- well, it's after the resurrection because Jesus shows up, <laughs> obviously. So Jesus does show up, though, and the Bible says that they were prevented from recognizing him. And so they're walking along, maybe it's about six to eight miles or so to this village outside Jerusalem. And they're walking along, and this guy comes up and says, kind of basically, hey, what's going on? And they kind of stop and look at him and go, where have you been? Have you not heard and seen what's been happening in Jerusalem these past few days? And they recount to him the suffering of Jesus and the crucifixion and all of that. And so Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now jump down to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now he's referencing something else that happened a few days prior, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Now let's go back. John 2, verse 17. Jesus has just made a whip of cords and drove all the money changers out of the temple, made a few people mad in the process. He was a little bit angry in the process at what they were doing. And his disciples looked at this and said, and it says the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, 9. And then, then immediately following that, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember for a reason. They remembered unto belief in the scriptures, validated the scriptures when they remembered and saw all that this had taken place. All right, move forward a little bit. But just back a few days in our chronology, the triumphal entry, John 12. And Jesus founded young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, Zechariah 9.9. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Luke 24, verse 1. 
But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This is the women that were going to the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Amen. Wouldn't it, I mean, what, to be that angel given the assignment to be able to say that for the first time, how cool would that have been, right? He has risen. The next word, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And if you keep reading, it says, and they were filled with joy and they gave glory to God and they were filled with hope. That was the reason they were called to remember. So, before we conclude today, I want to ask two questions. One we've kind of already got into a little bit, but we'll do a little bit more, is why do we remember? And the second is, how do we remember? So Paul says in Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Hope seems to be a pretty common theme and a pretty common reason why we remember. So in Deuteronomy 7, we see this place where the Israelites have been told by God to go and basically kick all the Canaanites out and take over this land flowing with milk and honey. And they had sent the spies in, and the spies came back and said, beautiful land, fruit's huge, really flowing with milk and honey, great, but there's a problem. The people. They're huge, they're numerous, they're powerful, they're well-armed. How are we going to pull this off? Deuteronomy 7, 17 says, and this is God speaking to them, If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Remembering drives away fear. The New Testament. Okay, here's my little plug for, for John, the Gospel of John. Because, two reasons. One, because it's so full of good stuff. If you have not read John 14 through 17 recently, I'm telling you this week, go home and read John 14 through 17. Because lots of great promises, promise of the Holy Spirit, like the one we, we saw in that Emmaus passage. But also Jesus prays for us. If you haven't read that recently, read Jesus Christ, the Son of God, praying for you. Read what he has to say. Also read it because in the chronology of where we're at right now in Matthew, that's next. Though it's not in Matthew's gospel, you have to go to John's to read this dialogue that happens while they leave and they sing this hymn and they're walking out to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're having this conversation and Jesus tells them all these things that's, from, that's contained in Matthew 14 through 17. So for that reason, read it for those reasons, but that reason as well, because where this passage ends and where next week's begins, it's right in there. 
So go home and read that. Contained in there, in John 16, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. There's the reason. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, the hour of persecution, you may remember that I told them to you. We remember to endure persecution. More than that, we're commanded to remember. Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. That's a command. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 5. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. That's an imperative. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. So why do we remember? Because remembering strengthens our faith. It inspires hope and it focuses our hearts, our eyes, our minds on Jesus. Looking to the things that are above, as Colossians says. Even and especially in the midst of persecution. So how do we remember? I had my ideas of what I was going to find with this and what I was going to put for how we remember. But I was actually surprised by what I found. Not surprised because of, you'll see why, but I had never thought of it this way. We remember by the help of the Holy Spirit. John 14 Another passage from the one I'm encouraging you to go read this week. John 14, 25 through 27. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We remember by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. It's not us. If you think, oh, I don't have a good memory. I can't remember anything. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, I don't even know where it came from. God just helped me bring, you know, this verse came to my mind or, you know, the story came to my mind and I was using it to encourage this person. You don't have to raise your hand, but has that ever happened to you? Yeah, that's the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. <laughs> that's one of his ministries to us is helping us remember. Other ways we remember. Reading the Bible. How else are we going to remember the works of God unless we know the works of God? And where do we find the works of God? Primarily in the Bible. All of it. Old and New Testament. By praying. You can't give thanks to God for something if you don't remember what it is that you're giving thanks for. I mean, I guess you could do like a real generic, hey God, I know you've done some really good things for me lately and I thanks for that. But that's kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say cheap, but put some thought into it. Think of specific things. God, thank you so much. Just yesterday, praying that he would bring my wife and daughter safely back from Azama. They showed up. Thank God for that, right? Thank God that everybody that went to Mazama this last week showed back up at home. Maybe a few bumps and bruises and scrapes, but nobody was seriously hurt. Lots of prayers were answered all week. Be specific when you pray and you think, whether you, know, you 
pray at night and think about what happened the past day or whatever it is, and you give thanks to God for these specific things. Remember what he has done for you. The fact that we're here right now on a Sunday morning is an act of remembrance. I think, I can't remember which one of the gentlemen mentioned it just in the past couple weeks. We are here on Sunday to remember that Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. So just by us being here, this is an act of remembrance. It's one way we do it. And then, of course, communion. Talked about the Lord's Supper in this passage, right? We see Jesus institute this supper and says, do this in remembrance of me. It's pretty clear. Singing, one of my favorite things. Love singing, love music. Colossians 3.16 reminds us that we teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when we're here on a Sunday morning singing together, it's not just vertical. It's also horizontal. We are teaching one another. We're encouraging one another. We're calling upon one another to remember the works of God that he has done. Especially when we're singing words of scripture. The Psalms. So many Psalms recount. When you brought us out of the land of Egypt, from the land of Pharaoh, by your mighty hand. Right? There's so many of the Psalms. They're remembering the feasts. All that stuff was to point back and show the greatness and faithfulness of God and his providence for his people. And then simply recounting the works of God in our lives to one another. It doesn't have to necessarily be in prayer during prayer time. Hey, does anybody have any prayer requests or praises? And, oh, I got a praise, you know. We can do it all the time. We can do it in casual conversation. We do all of these things. Hopefully we do all these things, the, the reading and the praying and all that stuff pretty frequently and regularly. The recounting the works of God in our lives thing, that kind of convicted me. Now, I know that there are certain folks in my life that when I get together with them, we are going to talk about Jesus. <laughs> that is just a fact. And we're going to talk about all the great things that he's done, really recent past, distant past, whatever it may be. And you're going to be in that conversation. You're going to be giving glory to God and recounting his wondrous deeds. And you're going to be encouraged and your soul's going to be fed. And you're going to be like, this is so great. Why do I not hang out with people like this all the time? Why can't I be one of these kind of people? The people want to come and know that we're going to get together and we're going to talk about Jesus, right? We can. We can be those people. Because you leave that conversation, which you don't want to leave, but you do eventually, and you're like, oh, that's so good and so refreshing. Then on the other hand, there's people that I know that I get together with, and it's very hard not to get sucked into the one-upmanship of, oh, you think you had a bad week? Listen to what happened to me. And it becomes this gripe fest where we're trying to outdo one another, not in showing honor and giving praise to God, but in my life is really, really bad. We could derail that conversation pretty quickly if we said, hey, you know, I'm really sorry you're going through a hard time, but let me tell you what God has done in my life. Change that conversation, right? So my challenge to all of us, here's your main application. This is the challenge to each one of you. Before the sun goes down today, find someone family member, friend, stranger on the street, I don't care, walk up to somebody and say, let me tell you about what God has, don't, don't test them, they might get angry with that, but <laughs> let me tell you about what God has done in my life. And we can, we can tell, we, we can recount the works of God in our lives and encourage ourselves, encourage them, don't let the sun go down before you do this. Find somebody and tell them something that God has done in your life. It could be something that he did this past week, this past morning, it could be, for some of you that are more seasoned, 60 years ago when Jesus saved you. It might be your testimony. Maybe you're here today and you don't have that right now. You don't have that story, that, that remembrance of God doing something great in your life yet. 
Maybe today is the first day that you're going to have that story to tell. Maybe it's going to be, hey, 60 seconds ago when Jesus saved me, you've heard the gospel this morning. We've heard it multiple times. Jesus lived a perfect life, was crucified on the cross, rose on the third day for our sins, for our iniquities, that his blood would wash us clean, would protect us from the wrath of God. So if that's you, don't leave here until you have a story to tell about God doing a work in your life. So no matter if your remembrance is 60 years or 60 seconds, we, like the disciples and every other Christian who's ever lived, we need the Holy Spirit to help us remember and remember for a reason. Let's pray. God, you are the great author and finisher of our faith. You're the one who writes our stories. You give us life and breath to enjoy life and also more importantly, to proclaim your wondrous deeds. Help us remember your faithfulness, your patience, your forgiveness, your love, your promises to us as your chosen people. Help us to remember the prophecies, to remember the prophecies of old that we see fulfilled, that give us confidence that you will fulfill the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. Help us to encourage one another, through reading your word, through prayer, through fellowship, communion, singing, and telling of your wondrous works to strengthen our faith and to give us a way in which we can show that there's hope. This lost and dying world that we live in, there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the day when we can be with you in heaven and we can sing with all the saints for all of eternity of all the great things that you have done and it will never grow old. But until then, Lord, help us. And come, Lord Jesus. Amen. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So.